Should we still follow the Old Testament law? That's a good question. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Church Questions, a place where listeners like you can ask questions about theology, history, leadership, church culture, or anything else having to do with successful Christian living in today's world. I'm your host, Pastor Don McKegg. Today's question, should we still follow the Old Testament law? This is a huge question. This is probably the oldest question that Christianity has dealt with, because this is an issue that New Testament writers were dealing with. Paul and the author of Hebrews actually wrote extensively about this issue. As far as I can tell, the first or one of the first quote-unquote ecumenical councils ever was called according to this question. And it is not only a big question in that it's historically significant, but what that tells us is that this question is as old as our faith, and despite the fact that it is a 2,000-year-old question and that we have large sections of Bible talking about it, it's still a big issue today. This issue has not gone away. Even though the Bible gives us explicit instructions on it, we still hold on to it, and critics of our faith still hold on to it as well. So we're going to try to jump into as much as we can. Again, this is a huge question, and we're not going to be able to get to everything, but my hope is that we can get to the big significant portions of it. So let's start defining some terms. When we talk about the Old Testament law, we're talking about the law of Moses. Um, I will probably refer to this regularly as the Mosaic Law. Mosaic is a, just a term coming from Moses. It's not, you know, from Erwin McManus's church or the art form or anything like that. It's just that's a term based on Moses. Um, this is the first five books of the Bible, uh, which often Christians will call the Pentateuch, and uh, and Jewish people will still call the Torah. So it's those first five books of of the Old Testament: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, these are the books, like every year, whenever you're like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. I'm going to get on a Bible reading program and read the whole thing in a year. Sometime around February, you start questioning your decision because you get into Leviticus or something like that. And it's, and it's actually pretty hard to read because the law is very extensive. The law is very extensive. It's based as it's based on the 10 commandments. Moses goes up to the mountain, he spends time with God, he gets ten laws, commandments, that are supposed to govern Israel, but eventually there are other laws given that get into how you rotate your crops, to how you treat people, to you know sexual identity and relationships, and, and there's stuff in there on not mixing the the fabrics of your clothes and how you cut your hair and how you cut your beard um, and how you treat your animals and and there I mean this is a a full law system on how to treat people but then there's also all of the laws on how you go uh, to sacrifice an animal for sins and what the different animals mean and when you go there's stuff in the festivals I mean we're talking about a hugely extensive 
law system that covers really in a person's entire life. Um, and, and more famously, there's restrictions on what people eat. Talking about kosher eating, that's probably something that non-Jewish people are the most familiar with, is like you can't eat pork, you can't eat shellfish, um, there's only specific things that you can eat, and things need to be kosher. Um, but as I said, this issue is as old as our faith. This really is probably the first big issue that the church had to deal with, and we're still seeing people fall into these categories, because if we look at it as a, as a pendulum, there's, there's two extremes. You can go one side, which is um, something that we're going to call the, the Judaizer party or the legalistic party, uh, but if you swing it the other way, it's something called antinomianism. So what, what Paul and the other writers were dealing with was the Judaizers, or what Paul specifically called the circumcision party. So what was happening is the first Christians grew up Jewish. They were following these laws. They they did their best to follow every single one of these laws, from how they went to the temple, to how they treated people, to washing their hands before they ate, to what they wore. I mean, they followed this law as well as they could. Then they found Christ. And so in their mind, who was the Messiah? He fulfilled uh, this, this prophecy for a Messiah. So in their mind, it was, you know, well, you, you, you do the law, and then you find Christ. But then Gentiles started getting saved. Non-Jewish people started finding Christ with fruit, with evidence. They were getting filled with the Spirit just like everybody else. They were prophesying just like everybody else. So Paul and Barnabas come back from their, from their missionary journeys, and they're telling the Jews in Jerusalem, hey, these Gentiles are getting saved, and we're not sure what to do about the law. So ecumenical, like the, the worldwide church. An ecumenical council was called, which, yeah, you know, it wasn't that many Christians at the time, uh, but the Christian leaders got together, and this is all in Acts 15. They called this Jerusalem council together to answer this question. Do we make the Gentiles follow the old law? Specifically, I think there was the issue of do we need to make them get circumcised because that was a sign of the covenant that Israel had with God. So if Jesus is... God's Messiah, then do you need to enter into the new covenant of grace through the old covenant of circumcision? So it was a really, I mean, it was kind of a big deal, um, not just in the personal discomfort level, but it's it needed to address the question of how do we interact with the law moving forward? And what the, what the Jerusalem Council decided is, no, we, we're not going to make the, the Gentiles follow the old law. We're not going to put that burden on them. We're not going to give that requirement. But this circumcision party or this Judaizers party was still teaching that Gentiles did absolutely need to follow that law. And as an extension, Jewish people that found Christ needed to still follow that law. So we have this legalistic concept still. And legalism is its is its own thing. I feel like it's way overused in the church to, to like push down... Um, somebody calling for righteousness, like it's just to shut people up. It's, it's you know, it's—I'm not going to go on that tangent. It's just one of those things that that legalism, I think, is, is misused, but there is something in Scripture identified as a legalist, and a legalist is somebody who views following the rules as the pathway to pleasing God. And the grace covenant says that God is perpetually pleased with us in Christ. But the, the Judaizers— would say, well, no, I'm trying to get closer to God by what I do 
here on earth. And, and what I do is follow these mosaic laws. And what's interesting is even though 2,000 years ago this issue started with Jewish-born people, I have known people, I have known people, born Gentiles in the United States, that after they got really take, taking their faith seriously, they really just had this love affair with the, the Jewish law and the, and the customs, and, and so they started following all of these laws, and look, if that's how you feel comfortable worshiping God, by all means, we have the grace and freedom to do that. We just can't be mistaken in thinking that that's how we please God. But when we swing the pendulum the other way, we get into a group called antinomianism, and this is probably the much more popular viewpoint right now in, in certain portions of our culture, which is because of grace— we can do whatever we want. Literally none of the rules, none of the commandments apply to us, and it's really kind of a love covers all thing, uh, because we do have this true statement, and we hear it all the time, no matter what you do, God will always love you. That's true, but we ignore a lot of Scripture that says, and the way that we prove our love to God is by following His commandments. So we have this, this antinomian idea that says, oh, I don't have to follow any of those laws, and I can do whatever I want, which might be true, depending on your uh, your viewpoint of salvation. It might be true, but it's not the heart of a Christian who's giving their entire life as a form of worship to God, as a sacrifice of worship to God, wanting to please the person that saved them. Um, and, and I think that there's a lot of pastors that are inadvertently teaching antinomianism, not because that's a part of their their theological makeup, and, and if you were to ask them about it, they go, oh yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely into antinomianism, I, I want my people to believe this. Really, I think where it comes from is pastors skirting around um, talking about righteousness through action, um, proving faith through work, which is a James 2 concept, just not talking about sin in general, and so we get this this inadvertent idea that I can do whatever I want and God's still happy with me, which God will still love you, but that's not the right way to think about our relationship with God. So we have those pendulums, and I think that those pendulums and 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 how we see people misusing the concept of law really gets us to what I think the real question is. See, this question, should we still follow the Old Testament law, I'm not sure that's the best question to ask. There are there are some there's some nuance that's not in this question. There's some there's some big ideas that can't be expressed through this question because this question is a yes or no question, but there's a lot of complexity to this. And we're going to get into the complexity, but I think what the pendulum shows us is that this isn't so much a yes or no question. So it, it's not should we still follow the Old Testament law or the Mosaic law? I think a better question is how should Christians interact? with the Old Testament law? What should Christian people do with the Mosaic law? How should we, living in a covenant of grace in Christ, deal with the Mosaic law? I think that's a better question. What should we do to interact? How should we interact with this? I think that's a better question, because understanding where the law fits in the quote-unquote New Testament life, in the, in the covenant of Jesus, is hugely important to understanding how we live our life with God through Christ, but I'm also starting to see critics of the Church, and this includes people in the Church, by the way, that because they don't understand the law and because too many Christians don't understand how we're supposed to interact with the law, using the law 
to push back against Christian ideals. Now, if you don't know this about me yet, if there's an elephant in the room, I like to call it an elephant in the room. So what I'm specifically talking about and how I've seen this used more times than not is whenever a Christian person is quoting something from the law in regards to a homosexual relationship. There are about six verses in, this, in the Bible, uh, three in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament, that deal with the fact that homosexual, so homosexual relationships are sinful and that marriage is defined as a man and a woman. And one place uh, has two of those. Leviticus has two of those. One's in verse, sorry, one's in chapter 18, one's in chapter 20. And so somebody's going to say, yeah, homosexuality is a sin. It's not the only sin, it's not a special sin, but it is a sin. And they're going to quote uh, Leviticus 18, somewhere around verse 20, 25, it's somewhere in the middle there, um, that says, you know, something to the effect, I'm paraphrasing, when a man lies with a man as though it was a woman, that's, quote, an abomination to God. And so they say, see, there it is. That's the, that's the evidence. Don't do that. Well, the critic is going to go, well, see, now you're just cherry-picking verses, because if you read other places in Leviticus, it's, you know, don't, don't blend the, the fabrics of your clothes and, and cut the bottom of your beard on a straight line and don't cut the, the hair on the sides of your head and don't eat pork and don't eat shellfish. And you do all of those things, so you're just cherry-picking. And so that kind of shuts the argument down, and so now Christian people are thinking, oh, I guess I can't even use Old Testament Scripture to talk about how we're supposed to live anymore and the expectations that God has for His people, which then gets you into this idea, maybe the Old Testament isn't useful at all, maybe I'm not supposed to follow it at all, and I certainly can't use it to try to help people come out of sin or walk into a better understanding of what Christ would have for them, because within the same book, even within the same chapter— we seem to have these ideas where, okay, homosexuality is wrong, but I'm wearing a cotton poly blend shirt right now, and I had bacon for breakfast, and I had shellfish two weeks ago for my birthday. I had, you know, f fried shrimp or something, and uh, and so we start going, oh man, maybe I'm I messed up. And really, all of what that is is a misunderstanding of how we're supposed to use the law in our life. So I think this is highly important. This is highly relevant for today. For those that would fall into legalism, for those that would fall into antinomianism, for those that are just wanting to have a better idea of how the law works, this question is for you, and frankly, I think that means all Christian people. We all need to have a good understanding of what we're supposed to do with the Mosaic Law. So let's jump into it, and the best thing that we can do is to understand that not all of the Mosaic laws are the same. And this is one of this is one of the most important points, probably the most important point that I'm going to make in this podcast, is that there are three different kinds of law. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which if you don't know the Westminster Confession of Faith, you need to know the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you'd like me to do a podcast on it, I absolutely can. But in uh, you can send that question into questions at donmckeg.com. But in 1646, a, a, a statement of faith, a confession of faith called the Westminster Confession of Faith was created that is one of, if not the best, full confessions of belief that we have, particularly in, in the modern era. I, I know it's still almost 500 years old, but, you know, it's, or 400 years old, whatever it is. I'm not great at math. I'm a preacher. That's a joke. Um, 
but a lot of denominations have built their statements of faith off of the Westminster Confession, or they've just taken it. So I think this started as a Presbyterian thing, so it's definitely found a home in the Reform Party. I know Methodists have used it, I know Baptists have used it, um, but but really how we, in modern terms, define things like salvation, the nature of God, it, it's all covered in the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a great document. If You, you can go like Google, Google it and get a free copy of it. But one of the things that the Westminster Confession of Faith does is it puts the Mosaic Law into three categories. And these three categories are going to help us understand what we're supposed to do with the law. The three categories are ceremonial law, civil law, and moral law. So ceremonial law, we're talking about the tabernacle and the temple practices, sacrificing animals, um, following the festivals, um, and, and the clean and unclean stuff, which I hope I can remember to get to that stuff when we get into the details of it. Civil law is like the local government, like how you, how you deal with people, how you pay your taxes, um, you know, if, if, if you do something to your neighbor, how you make amends, civil law, like we have civil law now. And then there's moral law, which is, which is the mostly like that's Ten Commandments stuff, but where ceremonial law is these are the rules for the temple, civil law is these are the, these are the rules for the nation, moral laws is just how you interact with God and other people. It's not the rules so much as it's the ethics that you live by, the morality that you live by, the thing governing your decisions. So there's three kinds of laws that the Westminster Confession of Faith identifies, and that's going to help us understand what it is we're supposed to do with the law. Um, just to say that, I'll say this, one of the things that makes it difficult when we read through the Mosaic Law is that though there are three kinds of law, they're not given to us in that way. It's not like there's a section where, you know, chapters 1 through 8 are the ceremonial laws, and then chapters 9 through 16 are the civil laws or something like that. They're, intersp they're interspersed. They, 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 you get one, then you get the other. You get one, that, and then you get the other. And another added layer to that is because Israel was a highly unique nation in that they were a theocracy that was being led directly by God or by God through a king, there are moral aspects to the ceremonial laws. There are moral aspects to the civil laws. And, and all of these things kind of mix a little bit, but when you understand what the three law types are, you really do start to see where the differences are. And look, having three kinds of quote-unquote law or rules, that's something that we live with today. Not all laws in our country, or in our countries if you're not in the United States, have the same weight to them. If you are, if you are speeding, and you're technically breaking the law by going 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. You broke the law. That doesn't have the same weight as if you robbed a jewelry store. It's not the same weight. And it's it's not the same kind of law breaking if you speed as if it is if you are in breach of a business contract. And there are other rules that we might have. We wouldn't call them laws per se, but let's say your place of employment has a dress code. Well, if you show up 
to work in, in cargo shorts, that might be a crime against fashion, but it's not a crime against the state. However, it is a rule that you're expected to follow, and there's repercussions if you don't. So we're used to having these different kinds of rules and laws in our life, uh, and this is just what Israel had. They, they had ceremonial laws, civil laws, civil laws, and moral laws. And when we understand those three things, now we can start to understand what we're supposed to do with those three kinds of laws. With all of that said, we can finally start jumping into Scripture, because as I said, Scripture deals with this a lot. There's, there's huge sections of this, and we are going to get into some of these big sections. Uh, I won't read entire chapters because they're in you know full chapters, and I, and you guys can go read it on your own time, but I will highlight some verses for you. But we're going to start—I said Paul wrote about this, I said the author of Hebrews wrote about this, um, but Jesus actually spoke on this, and this is where we're going to start. This is Matthew 5.17. So this is one of the first things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I mean, and, and really, it's it's like he gives the Beatitudes, which is, you know, the, the blessed are the people because they will get the thing, um, and then you get, you know, uh, salt and light, and then this is the next thing he says. So this is Matthew 5, 17 uh, through 20. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Well, now i got to stop there. We talked about what the law is, the law, the law of Moses, um, which, by the way, if I haven't said this, let me clarify, the, the law is the five books, the first five books, but most of these laws are going to be found in Exodus and Leviticus. The, the bulk of them are. But he said the law or the prophets. Well, what are the prophets? So God gave the law, and when Israel was breaking the law, he sent the prophets to explain the law in more detail and how they were breaking the law. So we have the law, and then we have the people explaining the law. That's the prophets. Uh, that's super, super condensed and concise, but I'm just trying to get to the point here. So again, 17, Jesus is speaking. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus is very clearly saying, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. This flies in the face, the antinomianism idea. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." So there's a lot going on here that we'll try to uh, condense and get through quickly so we can get to some of our big ideas. But Jesus is very clear. I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. I've not come to get rid of or to do away with the law. Instead, I've come to fulfill it. And then he actually says, and so if you teach that somebody's supposed to get relaxed on this law, you're going to be least in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and that you're not going to be able to get into the kingdom of heaven unless you exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees and the scribes were notorious for following the law down to its most exact detail. In Matthew 23, Jesus is giving the, the seven woes of the Pharisees. There are the seven warnings to the Pharisees. And one of them, he says, uh, 
you know, you're doing a good job in tithing on everything, including your spices, you just forgotten the big things like justice and mercy. So whenever they'd go to the grocery store and buy salt, I get they didn't have grocery stores, but when they go to the grocery store and buy salt, they'd pull out a tenth of it and give it to the temple. Like they followed the law literally down to the iotas and the dots. And Jesus is saying, unless you exceed their righteousness, which good luck, uh, you're not going to find a place in the kingdom. And well, that's a, you know, you're never in, never in the kingdom of God. Well, that's a kingdom of heaven. So that's a really big statement to say. Uh, and, and this has caused a lot of confusion for people because it seems to speak against a lot of the other scriptures that we're going to talk about. And that, again, is just because people don't fully appreciate and understand the point that Jesus is making. Jesus is setting up the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And for the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, and the big idea of the Sermon on the Mount is, like in verse 21, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, for whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. So he has these statements where you've heard it said the old way is like this, but I say to you, the new way is like this. So Jesus is establishing in this preamble here the theme that he's about to cover, which is how we're supposed to interact with the law, and that there is a, a new way to interact coming. And he, and he starts it by saying, I've not come to abolish the law of the prophets. Do not think that I am undoing the law. And this is really crucial for us to understand, because if Jesus was teaching or ever taught that the law is being undone, then we now run into a really big problem with fallibility of Scripture, infallibility of Scripture, and whether we can trust God's Word. Because if God said something that only was useful for a time frame, how do we start defining time frames? And when do we trust God's Word, and when, when do we not trust God's Word? But God's Word says of itself that it is an eternal thing that can't be changed. So we need the law to still be established. We need the prophets to still be established. We need these things to still be in place. And so Jesus is clear, I've not come to abolish them. So all of the antinomianism crowd, sorry, but we can't just decide we don't need the law anymore. Jesus said, I've not come to abolish it. What he does say, though, is I've come to fulfill them. This is the key. This is the key to understanding what the law is, how we're supposed to interact with it, and what we're supposed to do with it. It's in Jesus fulfilling the law. What does it mean to fulfill the law? A law has a consequence to breaking it. Again, you're speeding. I, look, I, I, you need to stop speeding. All right, I get, I get that the highway is long, but you got to stop speeding because I keep using these analogies. So you're speeding. You're, if you're listening in the car, stop speeding right now. That's all. That's all humor, by the way. Horrible attempt at humor. So let's say you you were speeding. You got a speeding ticket, and uh, you know this is in this analogy. We have to go back to like 40 years ago before you could just pay on the internet. So you go to court, and and you have a fine. You were speeding. You were 10 miles over, $100. You, when you pay the fine, you have fulfilled the law. The law said if you speed by 10 miles an hour, you owe $100. By paying off that fine, you have fulfilled 
the law. A law has a requirement to it. If you break that law, there is a requirement to it. Sometimes the requirement is jail time. Sometimes the requirement is uh, community service. Sometimes the requirement is paying a fine. But there is some kind of a requirement that you have to do because you broke the law. And when you, when you fulfill that requirement, you have fulfilled the law. So what Jesus is telling us is that it's not that the law has gone anywhere. It's that the expectations for breaking the law have been fulfilled. The law is still in place. And if you're not in Christ, you still owe the penalty of breaking the law. But if you're in Christ, Christ has come to fulfill the law. He's come to pay the penalty. He's come to do the jail time. He's come to do the the community service. He has come to fulfill the expectations of the law. This is what we need to start with to get into the three kinds of law. The first place that we're going to get into, because frankly it's the easiest one, is the ceremonial law. Again, the ceremonial law is uh, is talking about uh, temple sacrifice, or before that, the uh, the 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 uh, the tabernacle um, sacrifice system. But but this was the idea. In case you don't know. Um, is if somebody sinned, if they if they broke one of these laws, they had to go to the temple or go to the tabernacle and have a priest sacrifice an animal to atone for it. Um, Paul clarifies this statement for us in Romans that the wages of sin is death, but in God's mercy, he doesn't always require it to be our death. In the Old Testament, it could be the death of an animal. In the New Testament, it's the death of Jesus. But the wages of sin is death. So if you broke the law, you had to kill some dove or you had or, or sacrifice some dove or sacrifice a sheep or a goat or sometimes even a bull. And once a year, the high priest would uh, make sacrifices for the entire nation of Israel. And this is all in the ceremony of the whole thing. Now, the purpose of a lot of the ceremonial laws was, one, to walk through how to how to perform the sacrifices, and what sacrifices for what sin. But a lot of the ceremonial laws were on cleanliness and uncleanliness, or being clean and unclean. This was a huge deal. This was a huge part of the law, is being clean or unclean. And what clean or unclean essentially means is you are able to enter into the temple to perform your sacrifices. If you are clean, you can go into the temple and worship as normal. If you are unclean, you are not able to enter into the temple, and you are not able to worship as normal. And and cleanliness, for the most part, was something that was a time frame, but there were some versions of cleanliness that would um, last forever. For instance, leprosy. As long as you had leprosy, you were considered unclean. You could not go into the temple and have your sins atoned for. Other kinds of, of cleanliness were temporary. So like if you touched a dead body, you would be unclean for a couple of days. And and what a lot of the, the food stuffs and, and all of that, that's all cleanliness. It's, it's being clean. If you eat the wrong things, you're no longer ceremonially clean, so you can't go have a, a an animal sacrifice for your sin yet until you, you, you make it right. 
Um, and, and that's what the big idea is, is that we're, we're following rules of ceremony so that we can stay ceremonially clean so that we can have our, our sins atoned for, so that we can have the animal sacrifices apply to us. And that's the, that's the whole idea, is not being cut off from your ability to worship God by, by remaining clean. And what Hebrews—let's go to Hebrews 10. The author of Hebrews really dives into the ceremonial law aspect of this quite a bit. By the way, for those of you who are, who are curious, I, I reference the, the author of Hebrews as the author of Hebrews. A lot of people believe that Paul wrote Hebrews. I, however, am not one of those people. If you'd like me to go into depth on why I don't think that Paul is the author of Hebrews, um, send that question into questions at donmckeg.com, and I will make a podcast on why I think somebody else wrote the book of Hebrews. But regardless, it is still Holy Scripture, and it is still helpful. And in Hebrews chapter 10, really Hebrews in general cover some really big ideas on like the divinity of Jesus and and in our relationship to him. But in Hebrews chapter 10, we get into um, the ceremonial law no longer applying to Christian people. So again, I'm not going to read you the entire chapter, but really the whole chapter is talking about it. I'm just going to read you some excerpts. So I'm going to start in Hebrews 10 verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consequences of the sins." Three, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So in these four verses, the author is jumping into the ceremonial aspect of this once-a-year atoning for the sins of Israel. And his point is, if these old laws, if these old sacrifices could actually erase sin— then we wouldn't have to do it every year. These are not a once and for all salvation system. This is not a this is not a long-term solution. The old sacrifices were not sufficient in forgiveness because you had to do it over and over and over. So he's pointing out there's a shadow that they are a type and a shadow that that these were pointing to something else, that these are the shadow, and shadows always point back to the substance. These laws of sacrifice were not the substance, but they were pointing to the substance, and we know that these were not the substance because we had to do it year after year after year. That tells us that this was not sufficient for our forgiveness. Now we jump all the way to verse 14. For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So what the author is saying is in the old way of doing things, we had to have a different sacrifice every single year to cover our sins. Christ, however, when he was sacrificed on the cross, he acted as a single, one-time sacrifice that, that is perfect for all time. For by a single offering, that's Christ on the cross, Jesus has perfected for all time 
those who are being sanctified. So this is the type in the shadow. The Old Testament had the once-a-year animal sacrifice that would cover the sins for that year. Jesus fulfilled that law as the final sacrifice because the sins needed death. And so once a year, it would be bulls and goats. But that blood was never sufficient to fully cover sin. It was just to push sin at bay for a little while, or the wages of sin at bay for a little while. Christ came to fulfill the law. The law said the wages of sin are death. If there is sin, there needs to be death, and it could be the death of bulls and goats and dove and over and over and over. And Jesus said, once and for all, I'm the sacrifice for sin, and now he's fulfilled that law. We go on to verse 19. The author says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, 22, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the the high priest would once a year go into the inner room of the temple called the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was. You could only one person could go in once a year. And uh, there was a veil or a curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And once a year, the high priest would go on the other side of the veil, on the other side of the curtain, to approach this holy place or this presence of God. What the author is saying is that when Jesus died on the cross as the final sacrifice, the Holy of Holies transferred to the Holy Spirit living inside of us and a personal relationship with God, and that we no longer cross a fabric curtain, but we cross the curtain of Jesus's flesh, meaning when he died, he gave us access to God. That's what that means. Now we can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So Jesus is the final sacrifice. We no longer need to sacrifice anymore. And as a result, we have access to the, quote, holy of holies or the presence of God always. We always have access to that because the flesh of Christ is the curtain that we cross to get into the Holy of Holies. And this is the final verse I'll share with you out of this chapter, which is verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses will die without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has sacrificed and thus outraged the Spirit of God? So the idea then is this. When somebody would break the Mosaic law and there were some witnesses there, they would have to suffer punishment. But, and sometimes it was even death by stoning, depending on what law it was. And so his point is, is in the old way, if you broke the law of Moses, it was a big deal. How much more of a big deal is it to set aside the sacrifice of Christ and to trample underfoot the Son of God who has profaned, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? It's to deny Christ then. So this is, this is, we're talking about ceremonial law. We don't have to follow ceremonial law anymore, not because it's been undone, but because it's been fulfilled in Christ. The need for death to take place for our sins 
is still necessary. That, that penalty for the crime is still on the books. God still requires there to be a death for our sins. When Christ came, he was able to act as a one-time death that covered all sins. And this is, in a sense, the, the crux, or not the crux, this is the literal come-to-Jesus moment of the gospel presentation, is at some point somebody is going to have to answer for your sins. If it's you, you're going to die, not just physically, but spiritually, and you're going to end up in hell. You have access to letting Jesus answer for your sins. And if you let Jesus answer for your sins, you will be forgiven because Jesus is the one-time sacrifice for all and the high priest that gave us access to the holy places, meaning a relationship with God. So there's three kinds of law, ceremonial, civil, moral. Ceremonial law, we do not have to follow anymore. Why? Because it is fulfilled in Christ. So now now that moves us into uh, civil law. Civil law, as a reminder, is the, the, the laws that just governed how people interacted with each other and interacted with the government. It's, it's stuff like if you inadvertently kill your neighbor's oxen, how do you, how do you make it right? Um, it's, it's just like we have civil laws now on, on just when you go out into society, how do you treat people? So there were civil laws there, and civil laws are the laws of a country or of a nation. Israel as a nation had laws that were specific to their borders and their people. We are not to follow the civil law anymore as well, because the nation of Israel changed. And this is, this is a big, potentially controversial idea, and I don't mean it to be controversial. I don't think biblically it's a controversial statement, but for whatever reason, over the past couple of decades, there are some Christian groups that have this, this love affair with Israel. And look, I am, I am pro-Israel. Um, I, I believe that they should have a place of honor in history, but... When we look at Scripture after Christ, we need to recognize that the nation of Israel and how the Bible defines it changed. It's no longer defined as an ethnic group or a bloodline that exists within borders, but it turned into a spiritual group. And everybody on earth has the same requirements of salvation. It doesn't matter what bloodline you were born into or not born into— Everybody has sin on their life, and everybody needs Christ. And so, um, I like I said, I'm very pro-Israel, um, but we need to recognize that they don't have a, a special place where they just get a free pass. I mean, that's literally what the New Testament is about, specifically the Gospels, is that most of Israel was denying Jesus. Uh, and, and, I mean, that's really one of the, the big themes that was going on, is that Israel was denying Christ, and so the Gentiles had room made for them. Or not so it was made, but, but then Gentiles had room made for them. And so when we talk about civil law, we need to know that when, when Moses was pulling Israel out of Egypt, 
and and God was working in Israel through Moses, one of the things that God was doing was one of the things he was doing was establishing Israel as a nation. But because before that they were slaves. For hundreds of years they were slaves in somebody else's nation and God was trying to get them into the promised land and make them a people, a cohesive nation. Not not former slaves, not 12 independent tribes, but a nation. I am your God. You are my people. These are the expectations that I have for you. These are the laws that I am giving you to govern yourselves, to interact with each other in a helpful way. So he was establishing Israel as a nation. But in Christ, Israel changed. There is a new Israel, in a sense. The, the nation changed. Let me give you some verses. I'll start in—Romans 11 talks about this, so let me give you Romans 11, 1. Paul is writing, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected the Jews? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the Scripture says, Elijah, how he appeals to God of Israel? So we get very clear here. This is very clear insight. Did God reject Israel? No, he did not. But we get some more explanation in verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So the idea then is this. We're, we're going back to something that Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. That, that's the imagery that we're looking at here. So the vine is, quote-unquote, God's people. The vine is God's people. And before Christ, the only branches on this tree trunk were Israel. Those are the only branches. But what Paul is telling us in Romans is that after Christ, some of the branches were broken off, the people who rejected Christ. And some branches were grafted on the people who received Christ that were Gentiles. Because if you don't know this, this is going to help you understand Romans. Romans is a book about racism. That's how you understand the book of Romans. It is about racism. I'm not going to turn the whole podcast into understanding Romans, but there was a big issue going on in the church in Rome, uh, which there's a lot of backstory to it, which again, I can cover that in a different podcast. But essentially what had happened is though the church was started by Jewish Christians it eventually was overtaken by Gentile Christians, and there was a there was a clash. It was, I mean, it was a race clash. It was a clash of ethnicities. It was a clash of cultures. And so, what Paul's point is here is, guys, your your branches grafted in to the vine. You're you're grafted into the nourishing root. The root supports you, not the other way around. So chill out with your arrogance, basically is what he's saying, is remember you come from, or your faith is rooted in the Jewish faith. But the point that he's making here is that the nourishing root has changed. Israel has changed. It's no longer defined by who you are 
in your bloodline, it's where you are spiritually. It's not who your earthly father is, it's who your heavenly father is, and the way that we define the new Israel is by those who are in Christ. Because there's only two groups, those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ, the sheep and the goats, the wheats and the tares, the good fish and the bad fish. There's tons of parables about this, or there's tons of, of stories and explanations that Jesus gives on this, and it's not it's no longer Israel the nation that's defined by bloodlines and borders, but it is the church. It's the people of God through Christ. That's the, quote, new Israel. That's the new Israel. So because there is a new Israel in that sense, we don't have to follow the civil law anymore because the civil laws were there to govern a country. But the country doesn't exist like that anymore. There's no borders anymore. There's no uh, trace your, your lineage through through bloodlines. That, that doesn't exist anymore. What we have is spiritual, the kingdom of God, the brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have a heavenly father. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what country you're from. You are the new Israel uh, and you are now a part of this new country. And because the country has changed, which is now the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, which I know people define that differently. That might be another podcast too. But be, but now that it's the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, uh, the, the old civil law doesn't make sense anymore. We have different laws governing how we interact with each other now. So look, I understand completely that this is a a controversial topic, and I'm not necessarily needing, I'm not necessarily wanting to get controversial in this idea, but that's the biblical idea. That's what Jesus was talking about when he's saying that the, the branches are, are connected to the vine. That's what Paul is, is talking about here, is that the Gentiles have been included now into the covenant of Jesus, that's not just for the Jews, and in fact, there are Jews that rejected Jesus, so they're broken off from the nourishing root, which means the nourishing root has changed. The nourishing root has now changed, where it's not just all Jewish people because they were born into the covenant, because the covenant shifted or changed, um, and that people that are Gentile-born can now be in it. So that's that's the biblical idea. Again, I hope that's not being overly controversial. I don't I'm not I'm genuinely trying not to to make that controversial because there are some deeply rooted theological systems that I do disagree with that um I mean just again we got to call the elephant in the room the elephant in the room. There are ways of understanding some theological ideas that that the entire purpose of why Gentiles get saved is uh so that they can be placeholders for um, natural-born Israelites to go to heaven, and and so it's it's like the Israelites get to go to heaven simply because they're they were God's chosen people in the Old Testament, and even though they rejected Christ on Earth and a Gentile person received Christ on Earth, they have to switch places, and and I know it's crazy to I know it's crazy to say it that way, but there are deep theological camps that really do believe that. And I'm not trying to to pick a fight with anybody. I'm just trying to clarify the the biblical point that now through faith we enter into the the new covenant, which is 
the new covenant with Israel because it's not that the old ones have been undone. They've just shifted a little bit. And covenants is another big thing. Man, I'm just I'm just stepping all over. See, I said this was a huge question. I, I said this was a huge question. I wasn't going to be able to get to everything. But in short, we don't follow the ceremonial law because Christ fulfilled the need for ceremonial law. We don't fulfill the civil law because the nation changed. That leaves us with the moral law. Again, the moral law is our ethics and how we treat people, not from a, a, a government perspective, but just how we interact with people. These are the laws that still apply. We are still supposed to follow the moral laws. And in a sense, all of the Ten Commandments are moral laws. We are supposed to follow these laws. However, we have to remember that how we interact with the law has changed. The law is no longer a means to salvation. That's not the purpose of the law. The law is not a means to salvation. The law is different than that. And that's what I want to talk about next. We're going to be... Mm, Let's see, do I want to start in Romans, or do I want to start in Galatians? Let's read Galatians 3.24 first. Galatians 3.24. that says, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So now what we're talking about is how Christian people are supposed to interact with the law what the law is there for, what is the purpose of the law. When we understand what the purpose of the law is in the New Covenant, we will better understand how we're supposed to interact with it. And what Paul tells us in Galatians 3, which, by the way, Galatians was highly instrumental in Martin Luther developing his concepts of grace, but what Paul tells us in Galatians 3 is that the law was our guardian until Christ came. There's a word here um, that, is a, that is a part of a Greek culture what is a pedagogue? P e d o g o g u e. Pedagogy, pedagogue. I'll be honest with you. I got a C in Greek because I could never pronounce this stuff, uh, and I know that there's a way to pronounce it. But anyway, there's a there's a as an idea in Greek culture of a pedagogue or a pedagogy. And what would happen is when a child of nobility turned six, they would be given a pedagogy, and this person was just a caretaker. They weren't a teacher. They weren't a tutor. They, they weren't there to really mold the kid in any way or form them in any way. They were just to look after them. Yeah, you might get some moral teaching here and there, but really the job was just to watch them and make sure that nothing bad happened to them. And that's the word that we have for guardian, that the law was a pedagogy, was a, was, was a guardian. It was never meant to be a long-term solution. The law was never meant to be a long-term solution because back into the Greek culture, after a kid got into adolescence and they didn't need a guardian anymore, the pedagogy left. They were gone. They, they, they just, you didn't need it anymore. It was, it was a purposeful, short-time thing. And that's what Paul is telling us about the purpose of the law is that it was never meant, never meant, to be a long-term solution. It was always meant to be a short-term solution. 
So what are we supposed to do with the law? What is the purpose of the law then? Well, let's get into Romans 7, because Romans 7 deals with this issue quite a bit. So we're going to start in verse 4. Again, Paul is speaking here. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. Who? To him who is raised from the dead. That's Jesus. In order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, sinful passions aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So there's some big ideas going on here. First of all, Paul is very clear. Because of Jesus, we have died to the law. There is no expectation that we follow the law as a means of salvation anymore that we are in Christ now, that's the new way of the Spirit, and grace through faith, we now have access to the Holy Spirit, and that's the that's how we live now, is by the Spirit, not by the law, not by the written code anymore. But one of the other things that Paul shows us here is one of the things that the law does, which is it arouses sinful passions. That's Huge. Look at verse 7 of Romans, Romans 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So what Paul is, is talking about, and there's a really big idea here that he's really trying to cover is that one of the main purposes of the law is to show us how sinful we are. That The law is perfect. The law is from God. The law reflects his righteousness. And we're not supposed to look at the law as the means to becoming righteous. That was never the idea. That was never the intention of the law. The intention of the law was never ever to point us to the process of salvation. The purpose of the law was to reveal to us just how imperfect we are. And that's what we see Israel doing as they failed to follow the law over and over and over, is they simply were not capable of following the law, because that's the point of the law. It is a perfect God expressing His perfect desires, and now we as imperfect people are supposed to go, oh, I can't follow that law on my own. What I need to do then is not try to live a life of the law, but try to live a life in Christ. Because I know for a fact I cannot follow that law. So instead of trying to follow that law, which will lead to death, I should follow Christ, which will lead to life. So the purpose of the law is to point us to Christ. The purpose of the law is to show us how sinful we really are and to point us to Christ. Because if you go farther into 17, Paul actually 
really gets into the to the depths of this idea, and he actually speaks of sin as a thing that's separate from uh, from ourselves. And he says that once the law was formed, basically our rebellious nature cried out to break it, and and that the law exposed just how sinful we really are. And that was his point with, I didn't know what coveting was until the law of coveting came out, is that my rebellion would have had no reason to covet until I saw or recognized that part of perfection in God was to no longer covet. Now my rebellion in impurity needed to covet. It's Like I said, it's a really deep thing. I want to share with you also Romans 4, verse 15. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Again, this is speaking to the idea where there's, where there's no law, there's no violation, there's no transgression. If the law doesn't speak about it, then my sinful, rebellious nature isn't going to lash out against it. But as soon as the law does say something about it, my rebellion will push against it. So again, the purpose of the law then is not to lead us to salvation, but to show us our need for a Savior. Other, other verses I'll give you guys, John 5, verse 45, Jesus is very clear. He says, I haven't come to condemn you before the Father. Moses does that. Moses does that. The law of Moses is what condemns you, the law of Moses is what shows you how imperfect you are. It's the law of Moses that shows you your need for a Savior, not Jesus. Jesus has come to love you and forgive you and to offer you mercy and grace, to give you a new life, be a new creation, one that's promised a life of abundance and freedom from the shackles of sin and death. That's what Jesus has come to offer. The law of Moses is the one that condemns you. It's the law of Moses that leads to wrath. It's the law of Moses that leads to death. Why? We cannot follow it because it is pure and righteous and good, and without Christ, we are not good or righteous or pure. So Romans talks about this a little bit more. So by the way, I said Romans was about racism. This is, this is essentially why we get so many great insights to the nature of salvation, because Paul's overall point is, is okay, you're Jews and you're Gentiles. We're all sinners. We all, need a, we all need Jesus. We all have the same expectations of following Christ. Get over yourselves. I've just summarized Romans for you. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're welcome. I'm sure if there is, for whatever reason, some scholar listening right now, they're going, oh my goodness, what, an, what, a, what a way too simplified idea. But anyway, let me share, you some, share some verses for you out of Romans 10, uh, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So if you believe in Christ, you no longer need the law for righteousness. Verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and saved. For Scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a great... Man, that's one of the great passages in all of Scripture. And the big point that Paul is making here is that Moses writes about the righteousness based on the law. And he's saying is, if you want to live by the law, then you better expect the law to save you. That's the idea. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. If you want to live by the old law as a means for your salvation, then you better follow it perfectly. And that's what Jesus was talking about when he says you have to exceed the Pharisees and the scribes. You can't mess up once. If you're going to use the law of Moses as the means for your salvation and righteousness, you can't mess up once. That's the righteousness based on the law. And if you mess up once, if you break the law once, you've broken all of the law. And now you need to die. But in verse 6, it says, but the righteousness based on faith is to call on Jesus and to call on Jesus to save you and to call on Jesus to give you righteousness and to call on Jesus to purge out your sinfulness and to give you a new life of grace, in grace. That's the whole idea of how we're supposed to interact with the law. It's never been a means to our salvation. The purpose of the law is to show us our need for Jesus. So the ceremonial law, we don't follow those at all because they've been fulfilled. They're not abolished. Christ fulfilled them as the perfect sacrifice and the high priest. The civil law, we don't have to follow those anymore because the nation of Israel changed from a geographic place in the Middle East to a spiritual place of God's kingdom and that you enter spiritually, not by ethnicity. And the moral law is never meant to save us just to show us our need for a savior. But what are we supposed to do with the laws? We're still supposed to try to follow the moral laws. Why? Not because it has anything to do with us getting saved, but because it has everything to do with our relationship with God. There are two kinds of judgment that we need to be aware of in Scripture. There is, or yeah, there is, um, or, or two kinds of infractions. There's the judicial sin or judicial judgment, and then there's the relational sin. There's judicial and relational. The judicial sin is whenever a judge is going to render you guilty or innocent, and now you have to fulfill the, the qualifications for a crime. If you are in Christ, that's already been taken care of. But there is another aspect to it about the relational sin, where we follow God's commandments, not because we're going to die and go to hell if we don't, but because we love Him. And by following His instructions, we are loving Him, and we care about the relationship, and we care about 
that God loved us first and has given us this new life and that he is a blessing to us and a giver of good things. And so our life as an act of worship is one that is wanting to, to do what he's asked us to do. So we don't follow the commandments of morality. We don't follow the moral law so that we don't go to hell or that we don't get judged or, or anything like that. If you're in Christ, that's already taken care of. The judgment was put on Christ, and now we are, are free of those things. The reason why we follow the moral laws is because we love God. So the, the purpose of the law, then, is to show us our need for Jesus and then to show us how to live in relationship with him. That's the purpose of the law. That's the purpose of the law, is to show us our need for Jesus, and then to show us how to live in relationship with God. And Jesus gives us a beautiful statement about this in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's, it's not, if you want to go to heaven... It's not if you want to avoid hellfire, it's if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. That is the purpose of the law. That's how we're supposed to interact with the law. So when we, again, when we read this first question, should we still follow the Old Testament law? I hope you understand now why that's not the good, that's not the best way to ask that question. Because first of all, we have to break out ceremony and civil law, because the answer to that is no. But when we get into the moral law, should we still follow the moral law of the Old Testament? Yes, but understanding the reasoning of why is crucial. It's not to earn salvation, because we can't. The, the, the law was always there to just show us our need for a Savior. And, and again, when we talk about law being a guardian, it was a way to protect Israel. The, the Messiah had to come through Israel. That was that they were the chosen people. The Messiah had to come through them, and God gave them essentially a spiritual band-aid to to make sure that they weren't ever judged or or had wrath pour out them to an extent where they were completely wiped off the map, or there was a way for God to protect them should enemies attack. So he he gave this pedagogy so that he could look after Israel so that a Messiah Messiah could eventually come. And in that Messiah, should we still follow the the moral law? Yes, but not because it's a means of salvation, but because it's how we love God back. And that changes totally what happens if you mess up in sin, even though you're in Christ. It's not that you lose your salvation and your position with God simply because you messed up one time. It's that there was just a breach of the relationship. And so you go to God and you repent. I love you. I am sorry that I did this to you. Help me not do this again. Help me be strong so that I don't have to do this again. And that that radically changes how we interact with the law and how we think about the law. So I mentioned there's this pendulum idea. So we've got the Judaizers um, or the legalists. The legalists, the legalists need to understand the law has never been a means to salvation. You cannot make God happier with you than he is already because you're in Christ and he's happy with Christ. That's at the end of Matthew 3. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. You are in Christ. So when, when the Father sees you, he sees Christ and he's happy with Christ. So you can't, you can't do anything to make him happier with you. What we do is we use the law or we use the moral commandments 
to love God back and to establish a strong relationship, to hear his voice better, to receive his guidance better, to, to watch him move in our lives in a more real way, to interact with more of his blessings. When we, when we are pursuing a relationship with God, we are able to see him move in our lives more. It's not that we're making him happier. It's that we are, in a sense, closer to him and the relationship is stronger. But that's on our end. For the antinomian crowd, it says we don't need to follow any of the laws at all. The hard question that I have for you is don't you love God? Okay, God loves you. That's a, that's a cosmic amazement that God loves us. But the more pressing question for you is, don't you love God? God has laid out for you some things that he would like you to do and some things he would like you to not do. My hope would be that your love for God would compel you to at least want to do those things. Do we always succeed? No. Do we want to try? Absolutely. So it's not, okay, yeah, God loves you, but do you love him? Are you trying to to live a life of sacrificial worship that he can accept? And for... Defending our faith, when, when people say you can't just cherry-pick verses, one, it's true, we can't cherry-pick verses and we can't pull verses out of context, but specifically when we're talking about taking things out of Leviticus, understand that there are different kinds of law. And, and, and when, we, when we're talking about moral law, like having a sexual relationship with somebody of the same gender or somebody that you're not married to, that's, that's part of the moral code that we still have to live by as an expression of how we love God. It's an expectation of the morality that a Christian person has in loving God. That's not the same thing as ceremonial law, like eating pork, because that was to stay clean so that you could go to the temple and participate in the sacrifices. That's been fulfilled. So we don't have to go to temple. We don't have to make sacrifices anymore, which means we get to eat bacon or shellfish, or cut our hair in a certain way, or blend our clothes. And, and these ideas of, of stoning people for certain sins and all that kind of stuff, no, we don't have to do that. Because one, that's, that's part of the ceremonial, but that's part of the civil, and that was part of the guardianship of protecting the nation so that the Messiah could eventually come. We don't have to follow those things anymore because the civil law has changed because the nation has changed. We don't have to follow the ceremonial laws because that's been fulfilled. So anyway, I hope that has helped. I hope that has given some guidance. Just in summary, I'll say it one last time. If you have fast-forwarded all the way to the end, because I know this is a particularly long podcast, but like I said, it's a very big issue. It's a huge issue, and, and we really just didn't get to cover everything super well. But if I ever just touched on an idea that you'd like me to go into more detail on, great news is that literally the entire format of this podcast is that you can ask me about it, and I'll devote an entire podcast to it. But should we still follow the Old Testament law, or should we still follow the Mosaic law? For ceremonial reasons, no. For civil reasons, no. For moral reasons, or for moral laws, yes. But not to earn salvation, but to just live in harmonious relationship with God. This has been the church question of the day. If you would like to have your church question featured on the podcast, you can email your question to questions at donmckeg.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing. Until next time, be blessed, and we'll catch you later.